And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Hi, I'm Paul Merriman, and I want to help you be financially fit for the rest of your life. In this segment, I will discuss how to select the best financial advisor. And this is a difficult discussion for me because it's not just a matter of analyzing some numbers. It's basically about trust. And most of you probably think your sense of whom you can trust is as valid as mine. But determining whom you can trust is subjective and one of the most important investment decisions you will make. In fact, it may be the most important decision. And the question is, do you deserve the best? Well, of course you want the best advice that you can get. And so how do you determine what is the best? You know, think back to when you were young. If you had gotten the best advice when you were young, what a difference that would have made. Instead, most of us had very mediocre sources of advice early in our life, and we really have no idea how much that bad advice cost us. So if you had your life to live over, would you choose to have gotten better investment advice? I would. And if then, why not now? Why would any of us choose anything less than the best if we can have it and we can? So why is it difficult to select the best? Well, I think the challenge for most of us is we don't know much about investing ourselves, And what we do know, we're not sure that it's enough. Plus, we don't really know how much the people we count on know about investing. We may know that our source of investment advice is a great person, a nice person, and seems to care about us, but caring doesn't necessarily translate to good guidance. Parents can love and care about their kids and do a terrible job of parenting. So how much do you know about the training your advisor has received? What did their trainers and teachers convince them is the best for their clients? Were they taught that active management is better than passive? Were they taught that high fees are okay as long as the returns are good? Or were they taught that five-star funds are the best? And what is the compensation structure? Does the structure they use motivate them to do anything less than the best for you? Well, from everything I know about investment advice, if there is a commission to an advisor, you are not getting the best advice. The minute a commission is part of the process, many of the best investment choices are eliminated as they're not on the approved list of securities 
the advisor can even offer. How would you feel if your doctor was limited to the cures that didn't produce a certain profit margin and they wouldn't be able to recommend those because there was too little money to be made? Well, I don't think we'd like that. I recently spoke with an ex-broker of one of the nation's largest brokerage firms. He had to generate $10,000 a month in commissions in order to keep his job. He was young, and he found that his best niche, the people he tended to relate well with, were investors in their 30s and 40s. Now, he could choose to sell them mutual funds, and he could encourage them to invest in IRAs. That would be $10,000 a year for a couple. And in a load fund, that would generate about $575. So he would need to find about 20 clients a month, in theory. Or, and the company was happy to show him, he could convince his prospects to use a variable universal life Instead of the IRA, the same money except with a 50% commission paid. He simply needed to find about two new clients a month if he went the way of the variable universal life. And of course, the company taught him how to sell variable universal life products, so they sounded like that was just as smart a move as an IRA. But he knew better, and it's why he left the business. He couldn't live with the reality of giving advice that was not in the best interest of the client. So it's all about trust. And it's easier to trust someone who goes to the same church, belongs to the same club, lives in the same city. The stakes are huge. For the investor, it's about reaching retirement with enough money. Enough money to last for the rest of your life. For the advisor and the company they work for, it's about them making a living as well. And for many salespeople, there is huge pressure to sell. The firm demands it. So what does an advisor know? that will help you build your portfolio to be the best that it can be. What do they know? Well, there are over 200 financial advisor designations that suggest they know a lot. Now, some of these designations can take two to three years of serious study. And then after all of that study, they have to take a test that over half the people who take it fail the first time. And then after they pass the test, they still have to go out and get three years worth of experience. Now compare that to designations that require, now get this, one weekend 
of participation, getting ready to pass the test. And I'm only guessing here, but I'm going to guess that nobody ever failed that test. I believe that at a minimum, an advisor must be a certified financial planner. Anything less suggests they are only able to do a part of the work you need done. Now, the challenge to find the best advisor may be daunting, but I am convinced most investors will benefit from the work that it takes to find a good one, or better yet, a great one. An Oppenheimer survey several years ago that was done after a rather difficult stock market, they asked a handful of questions, and I was very interested in the response of people who had an advisor versus those who did not, the do-it-yourselfers. One of the questions they asked was, did your portfolio do as well as the market? Those that had an advisor, 82% yes. The do-it-yourself people without an advisor, 62% said yes. Another question, do you expect to be financially comfortable during retirement? With an advisor, 92% said yes. Without an advisor, 36% said yes. And I thought a very revealing response came to the question, do you think it's important to diversify a portfolio? With an advisor, 94% said yes. Do-it-yourself investors, only 22% answered yes. So the evidence, not only from the Oppenheimer survey, but all of the kind of anecdotal evidence I have being in the trenches with clients for almost 30 years, is there is a real need for professional advice. Now, I'm not really hung up on your source of advice. Now, that may sound like a strange comment from what I've said the last few minutes, but I don't care if it comes from a friend, a newsletter, a stockbroker, an insurance salesman, or a registered investment advisor. What really matters to me and I hope to you as well, is what does this person believe? Because those beliefs are what are going to lead to the likely rate of return and the likely amount of risk you'll be exposed to. It's what they believe that dictates the quality of that advice. So how do they feel about load versus no load? Active versus passive? Commission versus fee-only compensation. Minimal diversification versus massive diversification. High turnover versus low turnover. Do they address expected losses or are they just focusing on how much money you're going to make? 
Are they taking the responsibility for giving you advice on the whole portfolio, even though they don't get paid on the whole portfolio, or are they just focusing on the part that they're going to get paid for? How do they feel about the balance of small companies and large, value and growth, U.S. and international, and certainly how much stocks and bonds that you'll have in your portfolio as that is going to drive a lot of the risk that you take. You see, if you have a friend who answers all of these properly, according to the University Street, that's fine. Maybe they can give you some great advice that will let you make and be the best that you can be. But whatever that source, it's what they believe that you have to be concerned about. And I think you also need to care about the level of responsibility that advisor takes in what they recommend. Keep in mind, your neighbor has no liability for the recommendations that they make for you. Now, it may not be good for your friendship if they make a bunch of terrible recommendations, but they're not going to jail and they're not going to be taken to court. But there is a huge fork in the road that you face. I think it's a million-dollar choice. If you work with an advisor who carries a fiduciary responsibility, or if you work with an advisor who does not have a fiduciary responsibility, but only the responsibility to recommend what are called suitable investments. That is a major choice you're making. See, most investors don't know the difference. In fact, there was a major survey of clients of stockbrokers, and most clients of stockbrokers actually believe that their broker is a fiduciary. And even when the difference is explained between what a fiduciary is and a broker who only has to be suitable in their recommendations, most people are still confused. Now let me see if I can give you an example of the difference between a fiduciary responsibility and a suitability responsibility. A fiduciary must act in your best interest by law. They can't just sell any mutual fund. They have to take into consideration those forces that are either good for you or bad for you. So let's assume we've got an 80-year-old widow, and she's got money. She wants to invest in something very safe with minimal tax implications. Now, if a broker who has a suitability responsibility or a registered investment advisor who has a fiduciary responsibility, if they both recommend she put all of her money in a technology fund or in gold, the courts would probably find both the registered investment advisor and the broker guilty of not doing the right thing and probably require both of them to reimburse the investor for any losses because they have both failed in their duty. 
On the other hand, the broker could put that widow into almost any loaded tax-exempt bond fund. It wouldn't matter if the load was the highest in the industry. It wouldn't matter if the tax-exempt bond fund had high expenses. It wouldn't even matter if the tax-exempt bond fund had a mediocre track record. The recommendation may be lousy, but by law, it's suitable. On the other hand, the fiduciary must act only in the best interest of the investor. If the fiduciary can't find a justification for selling a fund with high expenses and a high load and all of these other aspects that imply more risk and not in the best interest of the client, that client is likely to be made whole. In other words, a fiduciary has a much higher level of potential financial liability for bad advice. And that's the protection you want. It's no surprise that most registered investment advisors who are fiduciaries recommend no-load funds with low expenses. It's no surprise they recommend funds with low turnover. It should not be a surprise that they recommend funds that are highly tax efficient. And you can say, well, that's in your best interest, but believe it or not, it's also in the best interest of the investment advisor because they must act like a fiduciary or possibly take on some liability. So let me share a couple of huge red flags that will suggest likely underperformance in the future, will suggest you're not getting the absolute best. I think, number one, an advisor who suggests they will get higher returns with minimal diversification is somebody that is not acting in your best interest. I recently had about a over a half million dollar account that I met with and the account had some 50 stocks in the portfolio. It didn't have all the asset classes we think they should have. In fact, most of the stocks would be called large cap growth. And of course, the advisor is making the claim that they're going to get them higher returns because they can pick the best stocks. They can outpick the market. I don't think there's anybody in the industry that really believes, other than because of overconfidence, that they found any evidence that people know how to outpick the market. So that's a red flag to me. Number two, any advisor who claims it's okay to have all your money in equities because they'll get you out of the market before it goes down substantially. One of the country's biggest investment advisors, in fact, has helped protect their clients against two big bear markets. Fantastic. Unfortunately, they completely blew the third one and lost half of their clients' money. So anybody who tells you 
that they know how to take lots of risk on the upside, even when you're in retirement, because they've got a view of the future that's going to protect you. Move right along because you are moving in the wrong direction if you accept that advice. Another red flag is any advisor who recommends you invest all of your money in the firm's funds. Talk about a conflict of interest. Think of the implication. If they end up putting all of your money in their company's funds, I, mean, I understand why the advisor might do that because they probably make more money doing that. Maybe even earn a trip somewhere warm in the winter. But are you telling me that one fun family, particularly one load fun family, has all the best mutual funds in every asset class? In fact, one of the problems you have with being in one fund family is that very few fund families actually have all the asset classes that you need. A fourth red flag, any advisor who puts all your money in one asset class. I don't care what it is. Now, there are some people, like gold salespeople, that that's what they sell. And if they can convince you to put all your money in gold, I suspect most of them would allow that to happen. Now, there probably are some that wouldn't do that, but they're in the business of selling gold. So steer clear of anybody who puts all your money in one asset class. And red flag number five, stay away from any advisor who can only sell annuities or variable universal life. What that means is they have a whole universe of wonderful investment products that they can't access. You don't want somebody to be limited in putting together a portfolio for you to be the best that it can be. Red flag number six, any advisor who won't put a dollar or percentage loss, you will have to accept with what they're recommending. Anybody who talks in terms of, well, you'll, you'll probably have a moderate or a, or a small loss, or you won't, you won't lose very much with this portfolio, no, that doesn't cut it with me. I want real numbers. I want something like this to come out of their mouth. This portfolio is designed to expose you to a 30% one-year loss. Now, how do you feel about that? That's absolutely imperative if you're going to get a great advisor, that you get one who talks honestly and openly about losing money along the way. Obviously, none of us think you're going to lose money forever, but you must be prepared for the worst of times as well as the best. So what would you get from a great advisor? Well, the traditional expectations, and you should certainly get these, you're going to get risk management, you're going to get tax management, you're going to get asset class selection, you're going to have somebody help you with the balance of stocks and bonds. 
They're going to take care of rebalancing your portfolio. But a great advisor is going to go beyond that. They are going to advise you on portions they're not managing. Somebody has to take responsibility as what is often called the quarterback. It's not unusual for people to have three or four advisors. But if they do, those other advisors have an impact on what you're recommending. It may be that the three of those advisors are all large cap growth. And so you don't need to load them up with more large cap growth. You need to make the advice that you give somehow fit with the rest of their world. A good advisor is going to help you with educational funding. A good advisor is going to help you with cash flow analysis. A great advisor is going to help you negotiate with your spouse. And where do you need help negotiating? Most couples, one is a saver and one is a spender. The spender wants to enjoy life, maybe spend a little more than is comfortable for the person who's a saver. And so you need a great advisor is going to help a couple negotiate these two important and legitimate points of view. So they can come up with a strategy that the spender feels like they're getting their due at the same time as the saver is getting their protection. And of course there's estate planning, regular performance reviews, all advisors should be doing that work. There is probably the most important responsibility, and boy, can this be the separation between an average and a great advisor. The advisor who can keep the investor on track. Keep them from loading up on more equities when the market is going up. Keep them from bailing out and going to cash when the market's going down. And, and this is not easy, Keep them from jumping ship and buying some red-hot product that is likely to get them in trouble. It's easy to look back and know the things you did right. Remember, there's no risk in the past. So what I will now tell you is something that we recommended that worked out well, and so it's easy for me to talk about it. But during the huge technology bubble of the late 90s, we underperformed. We underperformed because we refused to pile on any more than the, the technology that was part of the S&P 500 because we never had in these diversified portfolios I've talked so much about, we've never had a NASDAQ or a technology fund as a part of the portfolio. So it was great that we steer, stayed clear of the tech bubble. It was bad because a lot of people wanted to jump on board and some clients you just you could not keep them from chasing that bubble. But you do all that you can to protect them. And I will tell you, if you want to get the best from an advisor, you tell them everything 
that you know about investing. What I mean by that is you share the good times and the bad that you've had. You talk about the things as an investor that disappointed you, the things that made you happy. Because the more you share with an advisor, the better. Regardless if it's an average or a great advisor, the more you share, the better the advice will be that you will get. And I think there are two more very important things you should be looking for in an advisor. That is the degree of competence and the degree of ethics. You may not think of it this way, but it's the way it is. You've got a choice. If you don't really know your advisor and what they believe, it could be you will get the choice of getting a competent advisor who's unethical. You could end up with one who's incompetent but ethical. And you're in real trouble if you find one who's incompetent and unethical. I know what you want. You want competence and ethics. And you may think because you know a bright person at a club or at church or someplace in your life, a bright person that seems trustworthy, that you've got a competent, ethical person. Ah, but you can't stop there. That's only part of the formula. You need to dig one level deeper. You need to make sure that the firm they work for is competent and ethical. Because it's going to be the firm that is going to establish what the advisor is supposed to be doing to make a living for the advisor, for the firm, and for you. Now, it's absolutely unlikely that the firm is incompetent. The only point where I feel that there's something lacking is more in ethics than it is in competence. And one, I think, easy way to see that about the firm is to put the name of a firm into a Google search or whatever search engine you use. Add the word fraud. Oh, there's a whole bunch of other words you could add. Churning, fines, penalties, SEC, all sorts of ways. But just do the word fraud. Because fraud seems to be kind of like one of the worst things that somebody could do to you somebody you thought you could trust. And you'll be amazed how many articles you will have to read about that firm and the word fraud. Now, sometimes it could be that firm suing somebody else for fraud. But trust me, you're going to see way more where people are suing that firm for fraud. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I don't want to be dealing with a firm. I don't care how ethical and competent the advisor is. If the firm has a history of being unethical, I don't want any part of it. There are too many good ethical people working for good ethical firms that you have to settle for second best. By the way, you don't stop there you got to go one level more. 
Because not only do I want you to be in the hands of a competent ethical advisor who works with a competent ethical firm, but they've got to represent and recommend competent ethical products. And sometimes it's hard to know. Morningstar rates mutual fund companies for their commitment to their shareholders. Some are rated very high. I'm a great fan of Vanguard. I'm a great fan of dimensional funds. Those two families are amongst the highest. It's a little uncomfortable to talk about the ones that have terrible readings. You go look it up for yourself and you will find that there are a lot of fun families that at least Morningstar is concluding are not acting truly in the best interest of their investors. So all of those levels of competence and ethics are important. You're the boss. It's your portfolio. It's a business. It can be run efficiently or it can be run inefficiently. Don't you know that most businesses are run relatively inefficiently? Why would you be surprised to find out that most people who are helping others or people doing it on their own aren't so efficient when they're managing their money? So to the extent that you're going to hire help to run your business, I think you want to be sure your employees are all competent and ethical. Bernie Madoff was a very competent guy. It was simply his ethics that destroyed his clients' businesses, their life savings. And finally, I want to make one more challenge to you. It's going to sound a little strange. But I think it's important. I want you to determine whether the person that you are looking at to be your advisor is a hunter or a farmer. Now what does that have to do with managing money or giving people good guidance? Well, I grew up in a small farming community in the central part of Washington. In 1919, my grandfather, Paul Atwood, planted one of the earliest orchards in Wenatchee. And I can tell you, having grown up and worked in the orchards and watched the family work in that business, it is not an exciting business. It's a business of lots and lots of details. Details that must be attended to and you must have a lot of patience. It is not a get-rich-quick business. And farmers understand that the details you tend to today can pay huge rewards over the long term. They're working to nurturing those little trees to become big trees. Now, the hunters, that's a different breed of people. There is a moment of exciting in hunting that you seldom experience with farming. It's the thrill of the kill. 
Now, I'm not being critical of hunting. I'm just saying that it's different from the day-to-day work of a farmer. And in the financial community, the industry where I work, there are advisors that by their nature are more like farmers and there are others who act more like hunters. Hunters would be literally bored to death with building a portfolio of no-load index funds. Hunters like new products. They like things that are fun to sell. They like the chance to make the big kill, the big commission. A product that they can sell like mad because everybody wants it. Don't you think that's what happened to a lot of people in the late 90s? They got caught up in all the excitement of the technology boom And they got under the wing of a hunter instead of a farmer. Or the partnerships, limited partnerships in the 70s and the 80s. In the early 80s, I was asked to do some due diligence on a company selling limited partnerships. I made arrangements to attend a national sales meeting of this company. I made arrangements to attend a national sales meeting the company was having here in the Seattle area. There must have been 400 salespeople who came in from all over the country. And I was there for the beginning of this several-day get-together. I only stayed for the first morning, so I didn't see it all. But I want to tell you about the first morning. As the meeting started... I think we were in a theater, kind of auditorium room, big room. But as the meeting started, the president of the company who's packaging these partnerships to be sold walked to the front of the crowd and up onto the stage. He was dressed in a white smock with a stethoscope around his neck and in his hands and his arms, he carried an elephant gun. One of these great big guns you use to take down an elephant or other big game. And as he stood in front of this kind of stunned group of salespeople, he said, Ladies and gentlemen, today I am going to teach you how to bag an elephant. I'm going to teach you how to sell to doctors. And then he went on to make this presentation about how you sell, what's unique about doctors, how you make them feel important, how you overcome their objections. Those, I mean, there's an elephant gun right there. These are hunters. And boy, did those people make a lot of money selling that product. But I can tell you, the clients didn't. At least most of them didn't. So I want you to find a fiduciary. I want a fiduciary committed to what's in your best interest. 
I want a fiduciary who believes as you do about how you build a portfolio. All the things I've been trying to drum into your head about expenses and asset allocation and taxes and risk control. I want an advisor who is absolutely committed to helping you with your whole portfolio, even if you only have to write him a check for part of it. Be committed to helping your kids. Be committed to keeping you on course when things aren't going well. And I hope you find the peace of mind with your advisor that I find with mine. It is truly one of the greatest luxuries in life. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.